Yes, children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. You can follow Miss Ariel out the door. While they're being dismissed, we are going to uh, finish up the Sermon on the Mount this morning, so you can be looking in your Bibles at Matthew 7, verse 24 through 29. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. And before we do that, let's pause and pray. Father God, to you belong all power and dominion over all things at all times. And uh, you've made us a people who are glad at that. And so I pray that your sovereign hand and will would reveal to us your great desire to make known to us your riches and glory and mercy and grace. We ask that you would... uh, Show your great love by revealing your truth to us and giving us spiritual understanding by the power of your spirit with us. Lord, we just simply recognize that all of this that happens in these moments, minutes, belong to you for your glory and we believe also for our good and that the two are tied together as you have infinitely made them in Jesus And so we pray that you would uh, do your will in that, in these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We arrive at the end of Matthew's section on the Sermon of the Mount, and we are essentially going to be wrapping up and summarizing with Jesus, everything that he taught starting in chapter 5 up until essentially um, verse 14. And we're building off of some problems that we encountered in the previous passage in verse 21 through 23. And that all of this comes down to if you've actually heard this whole sermon since chapter 5, You're being called to apply and ask yourself what to do with these words. So Jesus isn't going to just put the meal on the table and ask you to look at it. He's expecting you to feast on it. And so here's part of the conundrum when it comes to what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. You have a depiction of what righteousness actually looks like practically played out in the life of a human being. What that reveals to human beings is they cannot live out righteousness in their life based on what Jesus has said. So you have a deeper, more fuller teaching of the law coming from the word of God himself, which reveals to us our um, inability to be righteous and perfect in and of ourselves and our own um, strength. But at the same time, 
I believe this sermon is calling us to look at the one who is righteous. And then as we begin to see him and follow him, then we are those who become able to do his word that he has spoken in this sermon. So at the same time, you have the impossibility of doing the sermon and also the possibility of doing these words as you actually come to follow Jesus. But in the natural man, none of anything that he's said uh, is possible, or I would even say desirable for natural man to do. But as he causes us to be born again by his supernatural power and grace and mercy, then we do become those by the power of his spirit that comes to live within us to actually do his word. And I would say, not only just the power to do it, but more importantly, the desire and the heart to do it, which gets worked out in us through our whole lives. Because if you and I are honest with each other, there are parts about his commands that we are not uh, uh, readily, readily desiring to do all the time. There are parts of his word that we're like, hmm, might ignore that for a minute. We're honest with ourselves. That's a really wicked thing that still exists in our flesh that we have to battle. But by the Spirit, we put those things to death and we say, no, he said it, so I must do it. And a disciple grows in their obedience and submission to simply that idea that he is Lord. Therefore, if he said it, and I have not only heard it, but understand it and received it, by the power of the Spirit, then I must walk in it. And that is the process that we call sanctification, or being made holy, or in essence being made more like Christ. And so the final example here, that what Jesus is calling us to do with the word that he's given us, is he's given us two examples. There's, a, there's only two categories of people uh, in response to the sermon, those that hear, the, hear it and do it, and those that hear it and don't do it. And it's, what I'm going to show you, it's, it's more than just the pharisaical um, teaching of outwardly doing things. Okay, it, it's not, he's not teaching just adhere externally to the law and you will be like the one who built his house on the rock. Because if we heard the sermon, then we know he is calling for an obedience that comes from the heart. So let's not get off base here. Let's not forget everything he's already taught us. This has to be an obedience or a, or a, um, a response to his word that comes from the heart. Okay? So we want to first talk about the whys, the first ones that Jesus deals with. Um, for those who hear and believe that he is Lord, which is key to all of this, they obey by doing the word in recognition of his sole authority to give it. And this is contrasted with the re religious establishment in the context of that uh, pharisaical Judaism, 
or the, or the, or the Judaism that the Pharisees taught, uh, which is adherence to the law for one's right standing before God. Um, again, we should have it had been made very clear to us that adherence to the law, while the law is good and perfect, our adherence to it is impossible. So in review of this sermon, we do find, as we go all the way back to chapter 5, that happiness or blessedness is only characteristic of those desperate souls who feel a need and desire that only God can satisfy, not those who maintain a strict adherence to the law which cannot bring life. You, you have to be um, aware of your standing according to the law and your desperate desire for God to not only bring you a righteousness that you can't find in the law, but a, a, a desperate desire to know Him and to be known by Him. It's, it's going into contrast with verses 21 through 23, where those people who Jesus declares He doesn't know, but did things in His name, were the... I would say the fools who did things without a desire to know him. And that's not what we're after. We're after knowing him and in response, doing what he's commanded. So I, I want to I try this exercise here because I want to show you that Jesus teaches the gospel before he ever gets into the um, part of the sermon. We, we have to understand first what, what Jesus is doing here on earth. Jesus is fulfilling the law. That's his personal mission. And he says, others who do it and teach it are called great, but they're not fulfillers. All right? He is the sole fulfiller of the law. He is, he is the sole one who completes and fulfills all prophecy. He is the one who alone perfectly adheres to the Father's commands for righteousness and holiness from a pure heart. It's not that Jesus on the outside did everything perfectly it's adding to that Jesus on the inside did everything perfectly. He is the only fulfiller of the law. And he tells you that righteousness has to be uh, greater than what you have seen from the scribes and Pharisees in order for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. So even if they could be called those who seem to be blameless on the outside by adhering to the law perfectly, <coughs> he says they don't do so inwardly. In fact, he calls them whitewashed tombs. They're dead inside. They're not adhering to it from a pure heart. He, and Jesus makes known to us from the beginning that you have to have a righteousness that's greater than the external that you see from them. He then shows us all the way to, I believe, chapter 7, verse 14, what righteousness actually looks like when you live it out. And so that description I've already explained of those three chapters indicts all of us 
and declares that we are all void of righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so therefore, where do we look? Well, I believe we can go back to the very beginning of this sermon, and Jesus tells us where to look. Because I think he describes in the Beatitudes uh, a, a gospel position of a person redeemed. And here's what I mean by that. You go back to chapter 5, and you begin to look through the descriptions of who's blessed, right? And what you see from the very beginning is the, is the blessed uh, who are poor in spirit and the blessed who mourn. These would be responses to sin in our own hearts. These would be an understanding of what we are as spiritual beings before God. We're poor in spirit. We're not rich in the goodness and the righteousness and the purity that it takes to enter heaven. And so we respond to that by mourning our position in our spirits. We recognize um, imperfection and fallen nature in light of a holy God. And so you start there and God says that's good. And then you move on to this those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In other words, the response to having this poorness in spirit and the mourning our own sin is to desire something greater. So if you just stop with how inept and sinful and wicked you are as a human being, that's not the gospel. It is seeing that and then wanting something more or wanting to be something more and in fact to have the specific desire for righteousness that you can't manufacture which brings you to desire God because in the gospel you'll come to understand that he is the righteous judge he's the one you Repent before he's the one you bring all this brokenness to. And you recognize in the gospel that he's merciful. Merciful. He will forgive you. He will bestow on you righteousness when you don't deserve it. He will do that for those who are found to be the poor in spirit, mourning their sin, wanting something else, and recognizing he's merciful and crying out to him like David so often does. And then they understand and walk in mercy because they have been shown great mercy. And what's to follow? They just continue to walk in that. They are pure in heart because he has cleansed their heart. They're peacemakers because God has made peace with them. And as they follow him in this dark world behind enemy lines, they get persecuted for it. And so what Jesus says, blessed are they. They know me. They follow me, and the world hates that, and so they persecute them for it. So there in the Beatitudes, you have the gospel presented before he ever gets into describing what holiness in the law looks like. So going back to how it is possible to live out these words, it's possible if you start as, a, as the person, the happy person described in the Beatitudes. Now... After all that, we can follow Jesus through the sermon.
So we then now live by faith, hopefully, in a merciful God. Trusting things like we see in chapter 6 and verse 12 in that model prayer that we ask him to forgive our debts, our trespasses, our sins, because we've forgiven our debtors in light of that. We've been merciful because he's shown us mercy first, and therefore we know what that looks like. We know how to communicate that. Jesus begins to teach that through this sermon. And then furthermore, he continues to teach the gospel here um, that righteousness is coming to us from outside of ourselves. In, in chapter 6, 32-33, the Gentiles seek after all these things, talking about the, even the, the daily needs of your life, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and whose righteousness? His righteousness. You're not following Jesus through this sermon to find your righteousness. You're following Jesus through this sermon for his righteousness. You're walking in his righteousness. So the question actually becomes, who trusts him for righteousness? If You're right to see this sermon and just be broken over the fact that you cannot complete it, walk in it perfectly. But the one who has been born again by the grace and mercy of God is the one who trusts him for righteousness. And so then they walk in these ways. And understand Psalm 23, verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what he's doing here. He's also communicating to those who are going to follow him or are going to be capable of this by the power of his spirit, already justified and declared righteous by his grace. He is leading us in righteousness through this sermon. This is what it looks like to live this out. And who's going to be glorified? Not me. For doing this, him. He's going to get all the credit for everything I do. Well, that didn't seem fair. Why not? It's his power that does it within me. It's not my power. It's his spirit. It's not my spirit. Why wouldn't he get the glory? It's his work. It's not my work. I get to enjoy the benefits of it, of a righteous life, of, of being uh, declared righteous before God, of enjoying fruit that, that glorifies uh, the Father that I love. And pleases him. It's not like we don't get anything from this. We get peace and joy and goodness. We get to see goodness come to others. We get to have confidence that the Father is well pleased because we walk in these things. But he receives the glory because it's because of him that we walk in these things. How about in Psalm 24, verses 1 through 5? The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof the Lord, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. 
he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Receiving righteousness from God. Psalm 31.1, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Psalm 103.17, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. I'm just trying to show you that the Bible communicates he delivers righteousness. He brings it to you. And we respond in praise and adoration and worship and in particularly here in this sermon, obedience by doing the word that he's called us to do. Now, I'm not saying that evidence that you have heard his word and received it and do it is that you do everything perfectly. But the story of your life will tell the redemptive story in that every day, every week, every month, every year you grow and those parts of your life that aren't really falling into line and obedience with his commands, they slowly move in that direction. Are they trending in that direction, as we would say today? Also recognize that this whole sermon, Sermon on the Mount, was prefaced by Matthew back in chapter 4, when Jesus is shown quoting Deuteronomy before Satan, stating that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That we, we, we build our lives on what he said. There is only life in his words alone. But I'm building the case here for why we would take these words that we hear and do them. Because Jesus, as we're going to see here at the end, is speaking with an authority that no one on earth has ever spoken with. And so why would we listen to him? Why would we do these things that are sometimes radical, definitely countercultural most of the time, and cause us to have to deny ourselves often. And I want to show you that there is life in his words alone. There's a scene in uh, John chapter 6 where Jesus says some simple things, what should be some obvious things, some true things, uh, but they become extremely offensive but only offensive to those who don't want to do his word because they don't recognize his authority as Lord. And so in John chapter 6, verse 63 to 68, it says, It's a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see that they were called learners of his until he says things like this and then like, No, 
we don't want to recognize that type of authority over our lives, over our spirits, over our hearts. We're out of here. But here's the response of those people who do continue to recognize his authority. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The followers of Jesus recognize that simple statement. That when he speaks, he speaks not only the oracles of God, but he speaks life. As he said earlier here in this passage I read in John 6. He speaks life. He is life. He is truth. He is the very sovereign word of God made flesh to dwell amongst us and to speak words that will bring not just life, but eternal life. Who do we go to? Who, where else is that found? We don't recognize that anywhere else. So finally, let's get into verse 24. He says, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone in this room is technically hearing. If you can physically hear, or even if we had a translator, if you spoke a foreign language, or if you needed sign language, we had someone who could do that, you're, you're hearing, technically. But, but the wise man not only physically and actually hears, but he builds his life on the words that he heard. He, he takes them and sees them as so valuable and so authoritative that everything he does in life is filtered through that word or, or built on that word. He lives on that word. Like Jesus says, his, his food is to do the will of him who sent him, to do the will of the Father. He does what he sees him doing. He says what he hears him say. His whole life is about what God says. And in his context, he is what God says. But in our context, we are those who outside hear, and then we have to do something with what we heard. Nobody else can speak to me or you in a way that we have to orient our lives around everything they said. Only the Lord can do that. And only you should look at the Lord who does that. Not the government, not even <clears throat> parental figures and power. And that's not a license. I'm glad there's children's church today. That's not a license to disobey parents, except that they tell you to do something that God didn't tell you to do. But um, it is to say that God is the only one who can authoritatively speak into our lives to say all of your life should be based on and built on these words that come forth from my mouth. And the wise man recognizes that. Psalm 119, 33 through, 30, or through 40. The psalmist recognizes that the word of the Lord is what he is to build his life on, and that word is where life comes from. 
Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I love your precepts. <clears throat> in your righteousness give me life. And the psalmist of Psalm 119 recognizes that life is found in his word. And so the whole, what, 150 verses of Psalm 119 is based on that fact. His word is as precious as life because his word is life. And in it is found righteousness. So, okay, so you're, you're hearing this word, you're doing it and you're going to build your life on it. Is everything going to go well because of that? Here's, here's where we have discrepancy with the prosperity gospel, right? That adversity comes to all men. That's not the question. It's, it's not to say if you follow this word, if you have enough faith in this word, then, then the, the rain and the floods, they're not going to come to you. Jesus says they're going to come to you. They're going to come even to that wise man who builds his life on my word. So the junk that you hear on TV and even in some local churches about uh, you have problems in your life because you don't have enough faith is a direct lie from Satan himself. It's not from the word of God. And it's very easy to see it. And it's more comforting to embrace the hard things that Jesus says about the suffering, the adversity we face in this life because he has promises for us in him. It's going to come. I don't care who you are. I don't care what um, uh, type of gospel or flavor of gospel you believe. There's only one gospel, and it teaches this. It's coming, so what are you going to do? And if you've built your life on the rock, it's not like a rock. You understand? It's, it's not some random rock or a bunch of rocks. It is the indefinite article, the rock. It's the rock that David recognized in the Psalms as being the Lord his God. You build it on that specific rock. Then when rain falls and floods come and winds blow, you will not fall. The foundation will not allow a collapse or as we like to say, when the bottom drops out, except if you built your house on the rock, the bottom can't drop out. And you say, well, I've experienced things in my life where it seemed like the bottom dropped out. Well, maybe it did. But if, but if your life has been built on this rock, then the bottom didn't drop out. You just got pushed farther, harder against it. Adversity cannot make the believer collapse. It can only push us against the rock. The word for beat here is different than the word for beat in verse 27, mind you. The word for beat in verse 25 um, carries with it uh, uh, the meaning of great violent force. So when we're talking about the wise man who hears the words of Jesus, 
as faith believes them and does them, then when that kind of force comes against him or her, then whatever way, I mean, take your experiences in life and input them there. That type of force, that most extreme type of force, cannot make you fall. Because the rock doesn't fall. It doesn't break. It doesn't shatter. It doesn't move. Psalm 118, 4-9, Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. And then here's, here's what I want to get to in this psalm. A psalmist, which I think is David, says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look on triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. In other words, the greatest security or help or refuge you'll ever find is not in any promise that any man or any kingdom can offer you other than the Lord our God. To him alone is it worthy to put that type of trust in, that type of hope in. And understand when we're talking about rain, we're talking about floods, and we're talking about wind, um, you know, think of real life examples. In order to not be swept away by a flood, you would cling to a rock, wouldn't you? You would cling to an immovable object. And when wind blows, what does essentially it do? Or should it do? Push you harder against that immovable object. Spurgeon has that famous quote saying, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. And that is what we are told in the Bible that trials do. What adversity does for us is it, is it pushes us against the Lord to embrace his promises. And if, if that is where your life is built on, then when those things happen that make you kind of kiss the foundation, essentially, by the pressure being placed on you, then you will taste again the sweetness of that foundational rock. This is the experience of those who hear and do the word of God. And, and here the promise is now of Jesus and his word for his followers. He says in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That kind of authoritative statement is comforting only if we understand that God is completely sovereignly powerful over all things at all times and all places. That the winds and the waves cannot remove us from His care. And then you have this great uh, discourse by Paul in Romans 8 
38 through 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it looks like to be um, on the rock, to be founded on the rock. But then he goes on to talk about what would be the opposite of that, the foolish. And everyone who hears these words of mine, Matthew 7, 26, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The word beat in verse 27 is slightly different than that in verse 25 and it is a lesser degree of what you see in verse 25. In other words, not even the most extreme force will cause these people to fall and collapse. The, the slightest um, shift or the slightest pressure in life will cause them to fall. Why? Because they hear the word, but they don't do it. It's not authoritative to them. It didn't change them. It's, it's, it's like the parable of the unforgiving servant that Jesus tells, who was forgiven of all this uh, debt, and then he goes on his way, and somebody owes him like a fraction of what he owed, and he beats them unmercifully until they pay him. Th that is hearing the word and not doing it. It's not having a heart change because of what you heard. It's Judas. Judas is that person in verse 21 through 23 of Matthew 7. He did things in the name of the Lord with every other disciple and apostle to the point where they couldn't even pick him out of their, uh, of their group at the Last Supper as the one who would betray Jesus. But Judas was never desirous of obeying the Lord from a pure heart and knowing him. He saw it was at the Lord's table, but he didn't want to taste it. The cost of discipleship is not worth it for those who do not do the commands of our Lord. They hear the things he says, but they decide, yeah, I don't think there's as much upside to that as the things I want to do. And so they count the cost, and they don't do it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed in the Holocaust, said in his work, The Cost of Discipleship, only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. We want to explore obedience for a second because we already understood that uh, works do not earn us righteousness. We've already went over that. But if you look at Ephesians 2, we see that these works were created beforehand that we should walk in them. And so therefore, when we're talking about obedience, we're, we're talking about it in a response to knowing Jesus, a response to 
seeing Jesus for who he is and taking that authority into account over our whole lives causes us to walk in the works that he prepared for us to do by his command. And if you want to know what Jesus commands, read the Bible. And he gives us two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. So we can begin with that. We know if we're disciples of Christ, that, that, that those are the big ones. That sums up the law and the prophets right there. And you can dive really deep into each of those. The Ten Commandments, you can summarize them in two sections and find that they fulfill these two commandments. And he says, love, love. Those are his, that's his great commandment. Also, with some help from Piper in his recent book, All That Jesus Commanded, here's a summary of some of what Jesus commands those who hear and believe his word and recognize his authority as Lord. Uh, we also repent. He says, come to me, believe in me, love me, listen to me, abide in me, take up your cross and follow me, rejoice always, fear God, pray and do not lose heart, do not be anxious, humble yourself, do the will of the Father, love your enemies, lay up treasures in heaven, take the Lord's Supper, baptize, make disciples, and so on and so on and so on. But it's all right here. It's not a mystery. We know what it looks like to obey Jesus, to do what he's commanded, to build our life on that word. But the foolish build on sand. They, they build on shift loose material, which is something other than what we just understood Jesus commanding us to do and to be. And sand, if you think about it, it has the appearance of a lot of little rocks, doesn't it? And it even becomes moldable and shapeable uh, when it's watered down, but it's easily swept away and destroyed in an instant. It doesn't takes a child's bucket of water and you can take down a sandcastle. I mean, it's just nothing. And that's what we find when people don't find sure footing on the words of our Lord, but trust to find righteousness in themselves or some other source. Some other source then the very word of God will prove to be um, utter destruction in someone's life. A collapse is sure to come when a life is not built on anything but the tried and true word of God. And you can go to Psalm 73 and you say, man, well, some people seem to prosper and do well, even though they don't build their life on the word of God. And what does Psalm 73 and, and all throughout Scripture tell us that no, that the end of the wicked is destruction. That judgment comes for them. So for their short whisper of a time here on earth where they seem to have um, escaped the judgment of God by not, after not building their life on his word, no, it's coming for them. The fury of his judgment and wrath um, will cause an eternal collapse for them. So the response is based on how you view the authority of these words or the word. 
So verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Astonished here means to be mentally amazed. It doesn't mean that they were all suddenly of faith because of what he said. It just means that they're amazed because they recognize something that in verse 29, he is not teaching by recitation like their scribes. Scribes are taking what other teachers and Pharisees have said about the law, and they are simply repeating those things. I kind of speak on that same level. I'm taking what God has said, and I am bringing that. Nobody speaks on the level of authority that Jesus speaks on. Jesus is speaking on this uh, level of authority as one who has this rule, this, that, that his statements made simply by the counsel of his will and his own intelligence and his own goodness. It, it, he, all his authority comes from that. It's not bestowed upon him anywhere else. It's inherent to who he is, as God. And he speaks in that state. And, and this is why I love Matthew's gospel so much, because he structures his, or the Spirit has structured this uh, recording of the gospel in such a way that these, these things get taught and then they get shown um, right after they're taught. So chapters 8 and 9 are going to demonstrate the authoritative, authoritative power of Jesus in actual real life. So the authority of the word that was given to us in Matthew 5 through 7, which amazed people that he was speaking on that level, gets shown in the things that he does in chapters 8 and 9. That's why I often teach chapters 8 and 9 as one whole thing, because they're just one event right after the other where we have to recognize that Jesus, um, his, his authority covers all realms of existence. Nature, spiritual realm, human beings, sickness, everything falls under his authority. So when he speaks, we are to recognize him in that authority and then build our life on it. If you don't recognize him in that authority by your own foolishness and your own selfish desires for whatever it is you want, um, then there will be a collapse. But he's given us all that we need to recognize his authority. And, and here's, here's the final point. We're all building a life. We've all been given a life and these resources of it and in it to use wisely, and that's ultimately for his glory. And so, in the end, that will be found out. That will be found out. And you, and you go back to chapter 7, 15 through 20 to see that. That um, there's, a, there's a fire in which he tests all these things, and he's, he's going to throw um, wickedness into that fire. But the good fruit and the good branches, they are tied to him for life, eternal life, to eternally bear fruit, to eternally enjoy and experience goodness. And this all reminds us of um, a hymn in our hymnal, right? The solid rock. It's 406 in your hymnal. 
And I'm not going to sing it to you, because that would be bad for you. But I will read it to you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace, and every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Respond to the Lord now and then we'll stand and sing.